these bombardment of stereotypes, we breathe them in. And if we breathe in this polluted air, then we're going to think in a polluted way. So we don't look at people with the same eyes. We look at people and judge them and assign characteristics and connotations based on physical appearance. There are more Asians involved in football than you would expect. There are nowhere near as many Asians involved in football as there should be. Join us on the Our Game 2 podcast as we celebrate the ones that are and discuss the ones that aren't. Okay, Kevil, hello and welcome to this week's show. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you, mate. Yourself? I'm very well, thank you very much. Kevil, so we still haven't met. We've been doing how many? About, we've recorded about 10 episodes so far. We still haven't met. Something close to that, yeah. It's, it's, it's long overdue meet-up. Cool. Okay, so because I haven't met you. Obviously, the listeners haven't met you. Would you like to tell us something about yourself so that, uh, well, just something for our listeners to get to know you a bit better? Uh, I don't even know what's interesting about myself. That's a great question. Um, I like football. Football is my passion and my love, and I also love golf as well. Those are my two key sports. Um, I studied psychology at university, obviously, and did a master in sports psych. And I love discussing all things to do with sport, including discrimination, performance, and just general issues in the world as well. Okay, thank you very much for that. Now, before I tell you something about me, I'm going to go back to a previous episode and something that you said. You used the word Caucasian, which we have discussed. Do you remember? I do, yes. And when I sent you the Wikipedia link, do you remember what you said to me? Uh, I don't remember, but I have a feeling I know where this argument's going and my position on the word has still not changed. Okay, Kevil, so in order to change your mind, rather than me try and throw some links at you or try and give you the years of my experience and wisdom, I've got an expert on, Dr. Dan Kilvington. Hello and welcome to our show. Hello, thank you very much for having me. So, Dan, you are the Senior Lecturer in Media and Cultural Studies at Leeds Beckett University, is that right? Yes, I am just cut out there slightly. Okay, fantastic. You've also, you're also a podcast host and I've listened to some of the episodes and honestly, the episodes have been fantastic. So the it's called Talking Race, is that right? That's right, yeah. First series was out over the summer and the second series we're looking at probably February 2021. Superb. And it's I saw it on Spotify. Is it available anywhere else or just Spotify at the moment? No, it's available Spotify. It's also on Apple Podcasts. And we cover a whole host of things on that podcast. So we start in the first series by talking about race, and then we move into racism and specifically looking at systemic racism. And then throughout the later episodes, we look at how racism is really embedded within different areas of society. So we look at sport, we look at online and we look at the internet and how racism is manifest there we also look at education as well and also children's literature so we cover a whole host of things in the talking race podcast 
Okay, and I will reiterate, I've listened to three of the episodes and they have been utterly fantastic. You are you. also you are also the author of several books, one of which, which I have in my hand at the moment, which is British Asians, Exclusion and the Football Industry. So what you've been talking about and what you've done in your life so far seems very apt and you seem like the perfect guest for our show. Would you like to just... Sort of tell us how your a brief history of how you got into this and how you got to the position that you're in and what interests you about it. Yeah, sure. I mean, I went to university and I studied media, communication, cultures. Um, I had aspirations of working in the media industry as a director or something like that. And it was really when I got to my third year and I spoke with my highly influential an inspiring dissertation supervisor and I was struggling for a topic and he said what are you interested in and I said I'm interested in football and then he said right we'll choose something in relation to football I was already reading around racism and anti-racism and things like that and the two went hand in hand together and I then started researching the topic of British Asians in football and the exclusion that exists and the the problems that exist within the game and the more I read, the more fascinated I became and the more I wanted to try and challenge this exclusion. And then, you know, we're talking 12, 13 years later after that conversation I had and I'm still researching. I'm then looking at racism in, in other forms, not only sport, but how it's manifest online, on social media, what this is doing to society. Um, so, yeah, it really stems from that that conversation, um, you know, way back in about 2007 it was. And yeah, it's really, it changed my life and, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. It's, it's a privilege to be able to speak to both of yourself and, and invite me on. And I think whenever we can talk about the issues that exist and as a job, as a lecturer, that's basically what I'm doing. I'm, I'm educating and I'm speaking about these problems and trying to challenge them. So again, yeah, thanks very much for inviting me on. And, um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's how I've got to this, this stage where I am right now, I guess. Okay, fantastic. So when did you do your dissertation? Oh, God, so 2008 is when I handed that in. And and from there, I then did a master's and I started looking at British Asians in football fandom. And then I did a PhD where I was looking at British Asians exclusion in football generally. So looking at fans, looking at scouts, looking at managers, players, and then carried on with the book. So the book was out in 2016. And really that was the result of about eight eight or nine years worth of work, really. Lots of interviews. I've met some amazing people in the game uh, who's, who shared with me their lived experiences. And I've been trying to use my platform in, in education to really showcase these stories that have been underplayed or, or not really heard, really. And the more we hear about these stories and these experiences and problems that exist in the game, then the 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 more likely it is that we can start to challenge those issues that exist okay i'm interested in the title of the book because you very specifically use the word exclusion which sounds like an active an active thing from other participants it was that deliberate yeah absolutely i think that we often use the, the term underrepresentation and I think that if we start using that, what happens is when 
we get numbers that are representative. People think that there are no problems that exist at all. And that all the systemic barriers that were once there have slipped away and gone. I think that when we use the term exclusion, it's about challenging those barriers that have led to this oppression and this discrimination that we see today. So it was a conscious decision to use exclusion rather than underrepresentation. And how have you found, I mean, all with all the work you've done with the dissertation, starting from the dissertation, how has your, or how have your findings been received by the people? Has it been one of surprise? It's a good question. I think that, you know, it's, you get different responses from different different groups of people so when I've been trying to interview clubs and I've been interviewing academy managers or scouts some have been quite hostile towards the questions and they take it as a personal attack that if I'm asking about the exclusion of a particular minoritized ethnic group then they see that that I'm coming their way saying that you know they're part of the problem and they very much are uh, defensive around that, which is not helpful. Uh, others have been very open and uh, accepting that the, there is a problem, but what they tell me, um, to some extent, it's it's almost colorblind to the point where they um, they suggest that everybody's treated the same, that everybody's equal, and if you're good enough, you get to the top. And again, that's problematic as well. I suppose the the minority of people that I've spoken to over the years and interviewed would have the consensus that there is a major problem and that the institutions can do more. Usually I've found that it's a bit of shifting the blame and it's say British Asians is responsibility to do all the hard work to, to get there. And it's not a, a relationship between the, the systems or the institutions and British Asian communities. So it's a, it's a tough question to answer because everybody's got their own, thoughts and um uh, feelings about about this topic um but uh, for me when you engage in a meaningful dialogue with interviewees uh, in in powerful positions those key stakeholders and they're actually aware of the issues then that's really nice for me to see but that doesn't happen all the time i must admit Thank you. Dan, during, so you've been doing this for, you said about eight, nine years, actually it's probably longer, 2008. So 12, 13 years or so. Has the yeah. pace of progress, well, first question is, has the pace of progress surprised you at all? Or do you think more has, do you think a lot, no, that's, let me ask that again. How have things progressed in the last 12 to 13 years? And have you been surprised at the speed of progress, either good or bad? Well, I think we go back to 1996, and I think that's a pivotal year because that was when Baines and Patel published the Asians Can't Play Football report, the ironically titled report. And that was the first bit of research that anyone had really done looking into this issue. Before that, it was very much centred around black experience, black experiences within football. and. Baines and Patel put forward recommendations for reform and they interviewed clubs across the country and that should have really kick-started the change and that should have kick-started the change among institutional stakeholders in the game to take more attention and more notice of this. However, 
we jump forward to 2015. So, you know, we're talking almost 20 years and the FA released the bringing opportunities to communities strategy, which was a four year plan. Now we're in the second iteration of that. It shouldn't have taken 20 years for the governing body to do something about this specifically. Of course, they had targets uh, integrated within other uh, strategies and uh, other policies that they had, which kind of encompassed the British Asian angle, but not really. And I think that that was a problem, I think. Also, there's only several clubs that have actually engaged with this as an issue. I think that West Ham, Leicester, Chelsea, um, and, and a few other clubs around the country, QPR, they're ones who've actually taken steps at challenging the British Asian exclusion in, in the game. But the vast majority have tended to ignore this as an issue. So for me, in terms of the institutions, in terms of the governing bodies, the pace of change has been very, very, very slow. Things are starting to move. We're starting to talk about this a lot more. As I've said, the FA are now devoting a lot more time and energy into this than in previous years but we shouldn't have had to wait almost 20 years from that research project coming out to then actual institutional action that should have happened a lot sooner for me. Dan just quickly on that um, do you think that society is the driving force behind what we're now seeing in sport in terms of um, positive action and um, discrimination laws particularly in sport, because you said there's been a massive time lag since that first initial report came out. And that just that just leads me to believe that sport is almost following society in promoting these changes. Yeah, I mean, first of all, sport is a part of society. Um, it's not uncoupled from it. And I think that the second thing there we're talking about is reactionary rather than being proactive. And I think that when you do look at, you know, stakeholders in not just football but any sport or or any um any kind of institutional uh framework they do tend to be reactionary i think at the moment we see what happened with the 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 george floyd murder and the response that that's had around the world now it's it's actually made people and organizations and key figures within those organizations rethink for example, their brand, rethink their strategies. Is it being inclusive? Because we're talking about it more, we can't ignore it. And we've seen the changes in certain companies like Uncle Ben's Rice reconsidering their packaging, reconsidering the name and things like that. And I think that it's actually getting people to actually understand that there are real issues here. Whereas before, I think maybe certain organisations and, and people were coasting by thinking that it wasn't a major issue. But we can see the protest across the world that there are real issues and we need to start addressing them. I, I wanted to ask about kind of your thoughts on where racism and, and the talk about racism is going. Um, I get asked this question a lot just when I'm speaking to friends and stuff. Um, do you think that society as a whole then, based on what's been happening, is becoming soft? Or do you actually think that we need to start addressing these issues in these ways, i.e. through banning words and removing statues? Do you think this is the way forward? Or do you think there's a, an alternative way that we could be dealing with this? I just wanted to know your thoughts on that. Wow, it's a, it's a big question. Um, I think that obviously what we've seen with the, the statues being taken down, 
for me, you can argue against that. Uh, the the slave trade, colonialism, this is embedded within the political economy. It's embedded within culture. Mm -hmm. But also, I think from a British perspective, we don't talk about the atrocities of the past. We don't talk about what Colston did in Bristol and how implicit he was within the slave trade. That's not talked about, but you have a statue honouring somebody that that shouldn't be there. Um, so I think it's it's about education or re-education. I think we look at the curriculum taught in schools. If we understand the past, we understand where we are right now and we understand the problems that we face right now. And once we understand that, then we can plot the demise of racism. But we've got to understand that past first before we can actually challenge it going forward. Mm. I couldn't agree more. I don't think another we never talk about is colonialism and kind of the roots of mm. race discrimination in this country. I mean, I'm thinking back to my own education now, and not once was I taught about kind of colonial Britain. It was all about the war. Yeah, exactly. You're absolutely right. I think it's also the same in the US that I don't think that the educational curriculum really teaches about the the, the transatlantic slave trade and, and what happened and the millions of African peoples that were shipped across and died in that missile, middle passage. And I think mm -hmm. that you're right from a British perspective, I cannot recall learning about the, you know, the Indian subcontinent and what happened there and the millions of people that died of starvation in the, in the mid to late 1800s. And we're talking tens of millions across about three decades, that is, a, that is an atrocity. That's a crime against humanity. But we learn about the Tudors and we learn about the Stuarts and we learn about the Second World War or Vietnam. We don't learn about these things. And it's really important that we understand that history because once we understand the history, we know where we are right now. And then if we don't understand that history, that's when people tend to get annoyed at statues, statues being pulled down or saying things like Black Lives Matter because they think, well, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. It doesn't matter anymore. We're in a different world. We're past that. We're post-racial. The, the answer is, well, no, we're not because all of that history has completely shaped the world around us right now. And we've got to acknowledge that if we are going to destabilise that unjust system. Thank you, Dan. Um right forgive me for putting this in here because it's very passionate what you've just said something that we ask all our guests one what can you just what is your ethnicity well i'm i'm white british i would say cool and what football team do you support unfortunately bradford city <laughs> <laughs> why do you say okay why do you say unfortunately Come and tell us your words. I think we all know why. I, we all know why I said, unfortunately. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm in my early thirties now, and I had the glory years of Bradford City being in the Premier League. So I remember in ninety eight, ninety nine, I think we were promoted. We managed to last a season in the Premier League on the final day. David Weatherall scoring a header against Liverpool to win the game one nil. And for me, this was this was a magical time of my childhood. And, the next season we got relegated. We didn't do very well. 
And ever since then, it's been a downward spiral. Although we did manage to get to Wembley and we played Swansea in the, the Carling Cup final where we got beat 5-0, I believe. So I did manage to get to that game. But I would uh, I would very much like to be seeing us back in the Premier League. But um, it's going to be a long time until that happens. You must break your heart seeing Leeds, Leeds in the Prem at the moment as well. <laughs> well, do you know what? I'm... I'm happy for, for Leeds United, even though I'm a Bradford fan and there's rivalry. I work at Leeds Beckett University and for me, it holds a, a strong place in my heart. So I've got a lot of Leeds fans who I'm a mates as well. So I'm, I'm delighted to see them. And I tell you what, they're playing very good football. They are. They're, they're going to be a force to be reckoned with this season, that's for sure. Yeah. The Beasler effect, I, th- I think he's been phenomenal. He's a breath of fresh air for football. But there you go. Okay, listen, best of best of luck for Bradford for the coming season. Genuinely, Thanks. I think one of my favourite West Ham games that I've been to was was it five three or five four? Five four. Five four, five, four yeah. I uh, yeah, I remember that game well. Where I've seen Decanio on his knees pleading with the manager to be taken off. That's not something yeah. you see every day in a football match. No, what what a game. That was one of the best games I think I've seen. It was fantastic. Right. Okay. So, Dan, sorry, going back to some more serious stuff, if you don't mind. Okay. Could we, all right, in your opinion, I know you've written about it and you've talked about this extensively, et cetera. Could you, what do you think are the main barriers for Asians or or for the lack of Asian lack of a large number of Asians in football as we see it, which is in the Premier League, the EFL, etc. Okay, so I think for me there are probably four areas that I would say constitute barriers and there's probably two areas which are commonly put forward as common sense rationales as to why there are so few British Asians at the top level. The common sense rationales that you commonly hear is first culture that British Asian communities don't like football or the parents don't support or the the religion uh, is against it or whatever these are these are very stereotypical assumptions that a lot of people have and through my interviews in the game so white scouts white coaches commonly adhere to those stereotypes the second common sense rationale is around race and around science and race so suggesting that british agents are not strong enough to play in the game or that's why they're uh, perhaps overrepresented in cricket as opposed to contact sports. So those are the common sense rationales that I strongly counter against empirically. So the just, four barriers just, that... Just before you move on, what um, I started off by asking Kevil about his Caucasian comment, etc. What What are your thoughts on that, on the fact that people try and identify different races within, within humanity? Uh, well, I mean, first of all... It, it is ridiculous, the whole notion of race, because it doesn't exist. It's a social construct. There is no biological or scientific basis for race. It's been scientifically discredited since, uh, I believe, the UNESCO conference in 1964. Uh, the Human Genome Project has also proved this, that we are, as uh, human beings, we are 99.9% genetically the same. Race has been created based on skin colour, but skin colour is actually pretty meaningless scientifically. All st- the, the difference in skin colour is just melanin levels. 
And melanin, in terms of our genetic structure, is is not a big thing. In fact, the the genes that determine our eye color are more significant than genes that determine your skin color. So the world could have been hierarchically ordered by eye color, but it wasn't because skin color is more observable. It's we see it straight away, so that's why it was based on skin color. Um, the the word Caucasian is quite interesting as well, you know, and, and a reason why I don't use the word Caucasian. It comes from the 1700s, I think late 1700s, 1795, there was a, a social scientist called Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. And Blumenbach said there were, there were five races of peoples. And he said the Caucasians um, were basically white Europeans and he called us, he called, and, and as again, I said, us there, he, you know, I'm a white British, so I probably would fall into that category. He came up with the word Caucasian because that was on the border, I think, between Russia and Europe, and it's the Caucasus Mountains. And he said that in the Caucasus Mountain range, you had the most beautiful people on the planet. And therefore, that's where Caucasian comes from, beautiful people who coincidentally were white. So Blumenbach and all these uh, supposed scientists at this time were were using science to try and justify these different races of peoples. We had Samuel Morton who who tried to measure skull sizes and say that the cranial capacity in your skull determined how intelligent you are. There is no evidence for that at all. Intelligence doesn't work like that. But we had hundreds of years of scientists and anthropologists and philosophers trying to suggest that there were different races of people in a biological sense. Uh, In short, there is no such thing as race in a scientific point of view, a biological point of view. Race is a social construct. It's been invented to keep people lower in the hierarchy of humanity and people higher. And that's where race comes from. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, so, Kevil, there's something about me that you may not know is I will go to any lengths to prove an argument, including bringing on specialist guest speakers. Ha! <laughs> I, I actually had a question on that, Dan. Um, you talk about uh, not being able to discriminate race based on anthropo- anthropological evidence. Um, would you not be able to, say, determine different races or different cultures based on diet, bone density, muscle, muscle mass, et cetera, et cetera. Are there any physical markers that could differentiate between different cultures or different races? No. The the races that we've constructed as human beings, it's, it's an invention. The genetic differences across all of Homo sapiens, across all human beings, 7 billion of us, the genetic differences don't map on to the constructed racial categories that we've created. So we create categories based on skin color, but that's that's ridiculous because genetically skin color is not, not a, a major part of our genetic code, our DNA. Uh, it's quite small. There might be genetic differences between all of humanity that could be meaningful, but that that hasn't been found because we have a tendency to try and map genetics with racial groups and racial groups don't exist. So it is a complete construction. And for example, if we look at 
Africa. Africa is the most genetically diverse continent um, on, on the planet. And the Human Genome Project found that Zimbabweans and Somalis are genetically different. And they also found that a Somali, so even though they are still considered the same race with, or, of what we would create in terms of race, the same racial group, um, but a Somali has more in common genetically with a white European than with a Zimbabwean, even though they're categorized in the same racial group as black African. Okay. So this, this whole um, fascination of, and, and the way we think in terms of common sense, in terms of race, um, it's still bewildering that we think like this, but it's, it's embedded in everyday discourse. It's embedded in how we think. We think there are scientific or biological differences between racial groups, and there aren't. And this has been categorically proven um, for many, many years, but we still think like this and we still go back to that. And I think just going further on, on what you mentioned there in your question, we have a lot of um, say, uh, diseases where we try and link that to a, a racial category, for example, sickle cell anemia, and then that becomes, oh, that only affects um uh, people of color or, or African-Americans or black people or Africans or whatever it might be. And, and that's not how, that's not how it works. That's not what the evidence suggests. So sickle cell anemia comes from areas where there's high, uh, a higher likelihood of getting malaria. And there's been a slight genetic mutation to protect against malaria. But the flip side of that is you, you may then get sickle cell anemia. But if you look at whiter areas or, or countries that are classed as Mediterranean or white, they still suffer from that. But there's an over-representation of people in Africa who suffer from malaria. So therefore, we've got an over-representation of people who have sickle cell anemia. Um, so commonly, we hear all these things about race being biological and scientific, which is just completely untrue. I love, I love, hearing, I love hearing you speak because so much research and the way that scientists and you know academics view literature is through almost subjectivist lens where it has to fit a narrative but the way that you the way that you narrate the literature is just such in such a, a logical way it's just so, so nice to hear it's such a nice change oh well thank you very much okay so dan this is some just i mean this is an aside from everything else um probably not the scope of this podcast but I, I, everything that you've just said, I pretty much know every. I, I know all of that, which is why I started the conversation with Kevin in the first place. But I know for a fact yeah. that my daughter, who's sixteen, just did the GCSEs over the summer. She doesn't, so it just sound. Is this covered in the curriculum? And if not, why not? You know what? I've been asking that question for a very long time. Um, I had to wait until I was you know, 20 years old until I actually had a, an opportunity to learn about this stuff, to learn about race, to learn about racism, systemic racism. These are the types of things that we should be teaching in schools, you know, not only at secondary level, but, you know, primary level. I mean, let's let's talk about these differences and what the, the, the impact that these differences have. Let's talk about oppression and let's talk about discrimination and learn about that from a very young age what constitutes hate why do we think like that how can we challenge that and you're exactly you're absolutely right the fact that we don't know about race is 
is a major problem. Um, and, and it's something that should be factored into the curriculum, but unfortunately it's not. And going back to what we talked about earlier, colonialism also not covered in the curriculum. And this is this is a problem because we're, we're forgetting and we're not knowing things that we should really know, um, which, which is a major issue. Yeah. Okay. Um, interesting. Going back to the culture thing, I my boy is, or well, the last couple of weeks, he's been trialing with a Premier League academy, and I just yeah. got into a conversation with the coach, and we were talking. Somehow, cricket came up in the conversation. He asked me, "Do I like cricket?" And I said to him, "Well, since my boy plays, I've got more of an appreciation for it over the last couple of years," and that has stuck in his head. He's I've heard him talk about my boy on the phone while he's trying to be arranged matches and stuff like that, et cetera. And he always brings it back to the fact that he's a cricketer. He goes, this lad's a cricketer. He's a wicketkeeper. He's really good. It might just be cricket, but the fact that I'm Indian, my boy's Indian, and that's the bit he seems to have stuck to, it does make me think about sort of un- going back to unconscious biases and cultural differences or cultural beliefs. Yeah, I think that I've I've spoken to a lot of scouts and academy managers and coaches out there and cricket does come up quite a lot. So I remember one conversation I had with an academy manager uh, when I asked where where were the British Asian footballers, which was obviously a common question that I asked to see their thoughts and then probe a little bit further. And it was very much from a cultural lens. So it was suggesting that um, cricket has been within the the British Asian or the Indian culture for such a long time that it's ingrained that that's the norm, that it's all about cricket and that's the only sport that matters. I think one thing that surprises people is the history of football within India, within the Indian subcontinent. And I mean, how how much do you know about the history of football and when the first teams and leagues were set up, just out of curiosity? Well, funnily enough, our guest last week, Yaya Patel, who works with Blackburn Rovers Ladies Academy, um, he was telling us, I think he wrote his dissertation on this, and he said that the British Army took, or the East India Company (laughs) took football across in the mid-1800s. Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. But it was a surprise to us, we didn't know. Yeah, and and it was when I found that out the first time, I was also surprised. And I think that we are talking when the leagues were set up in India, we're talking about the 1880s. So this is a sport that's been part of India for 140 years. So when we had mass migration following the Second World War and and from India, we had the the migration across to, to Britain. You know, it wasn't that football was this alien sport. It was... It was a quite a, a common sight. I mean, football was was known. Um, so I think that that history is unknown by uh, by the white scouts, coaches, talent identifiers within the game. So they do jump back time and time again to well, it's cricket that's that's clearly the most important one. And I think that part of the reason why they might think like that is because of the images that we see in popular culture. So if we think of somebody like Nasser Hussain or uh, Monty Panesar, we see British Asians who have competed at the top level in cricket, but we're yet to see that within football. 
And I think that because we don't see that visibility to the same level in football as opposed to cricket, it keeps alive those stereotypical assumptions that British Asians are not interested or that cricket is the number one game. Thank you. Okay, so going back to the question, I was asking you about the the main barriers or the reasons for the exclusion so far. You, You mentioned culture, race. Yeah, absolutely. So those are the common sense rationales that are commonly put forward. But I think there's probably four barriers that I would I would put forward. I think the first one is overt forms of discrimination that, that many people have told me about over the last 10, 12 years. So turning up to play and, and facing abuse, not only from your uh from the rival team, but also the team that you play for. And you, again, you go back to the 1960s, 1970s as evidence where British Asians gone to play at white clubs, but being threatened, basically this non-welcoming exclusionary policy that exists. And as a result of that overt racism that still exists in amateur spaces and semi-professional more so than the professional level, it deters some people. So they actually opt out of the game and play in unaffiliated structures. So that's number one. Number two, this is a major one, and this is institutionalised racism or the practice of institutionalised racism. And within that, you've got the macro level, you've got the meso level, and you've got the micro level. And if we just focus on that middle tier, which is the meso level, that's about the organisational structures and processes and norms and traditions that exist within an institution. And if we look at networking and we look at talent identification, What scouts will usually do, and the majority of scouts in the game are white and traditionally have been, they'll have white-to-white networks. So they'll go to established leagues, they'll go to established places, they'll already have the contacts and networks, and they'll use those to find players. Because of the, the somewhat social segregation that we have, and we've got areas that are predominantly white, and we've got areas that we have that are predominantly British South Asian, And again, I've seen this, I'm from Bradford, so we've got Manningham, Girlington, and these areas, scouts would rarely jump into these areas to find players. If we diversify the scouting network, it's likely that you're going to see a little bit more diversity in the recruitment of the players that are coming in. So I think institutionally, there's been issues about talent identification and recruitment. Okay, so that's the second one. The third one, I think it comes down to opportunities. And again, I've conducted quite a lot of my work in the north of England, which is where I'm from, as you can tell from my accent. And the opportunities for British South Asian boys and girls are less frequent to play for a team um, in the areas where they reside, as opposed to if they grew up in an area that was more uh, rural and whiter. So if you look at the postcodes around Bradford, there's more teams, more grassroots teams available in the whiter areas than in British South Asian areas and those postcodes. And I think that we need to look back at that history as well. So if we look at the migration and we look at the first generation that came, football wasn't the number one priority. It was about feeding feeding yourself, feeding the family, getting a roof over your head and security. For the second generation, sport becomes a little bit more uh, of, a, of an opportunity that you can get involved in, but you've got to lay the foundations yourselves. The structures are not there in those areas. And then we've got the third generation that are benefiting from that last generation. So 
there's so British South Asian communities in terms of say Northern England are a little bit behind because of that that generational uh, difference that we've seen. So again, opportunities are less frequent. So I've spoken to many players who, in order to play, they've had to jump on a couple of buses, go across to a whiter area where they didn't know a single person and play there. Now they've said in order to do that, they were thick skinned. They had to put up with some kind of stereotypes and abuse that got thrown away, but they did it. And those players actually went on to make it in the game, either semi-professional or get get um, scouted um, because they're playing in an area where the scouts were. Um, but not everybody would be comfortable doing that. And the bottom line for me is that the scouts should go to those areas to find players. And the fourth and final one would be role models. And yes, we have had role models. And I think that people like Zeshraman, Anwar Udin, we've got Neil Taylor, um, and the list goes on. We've got players playing in the game. And these role models are massively important. But I think that we we increase that visibility. We champion these players and coaches and role models from all sectors of the game. Then I think that that will provide that sense of ignition for for young players out there that think they can do it, young aspiring coaches that they can do it, and also the dual role of role models as well, that it'll challenge those white scouts and coaches and managers out there who subscribe to this idea that British Asians are not interested or not good enough or culturally not right. It'll challenge their mindsets. They'll see that visibility. They can't ignore it, and then they'll change their practices accordingly so those are probably the four key areas that would suggest constitute the the main barriers okay so question about it's interesting what you said about the where the clubs are located so i know there are quite a lot and there have been for several years quite a lot of asian clubs or predominantly asian clubs in many ethnic areas do you think they help or they hinder yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think that if we look at the bigger picture in terms of the scouting networks, they have hindered the progress of players into the game. Now, that's not putting any blame onto British Asian football communities in the areas that are predominantly British Asian in terms of teams or leagues. My argument would be that the football structures need to reach out to these environments to, to to develop these relationships, to find players, rather than relying in the same leagues, the same areas, the same networks to find players through the recruitment process. And problematically, because we have had uh, predominantly British Asian teams, and in some cases, British Asian leagues, the scouting structures have not visited them. And that's been the issue. And I also, again, really want to avoid any blame being placed onto uh, British Asians for uh, having uh, mono-ethnic teams because when a white team is white, nobody says those white people like to keep to themselves. But when a British Asian team is predominantly British Asian, what I've heard in the game from scouts and coaches is that they like to keep to themselves. They don't want to integrate. It's their problem. They need to change the way that they run things. And that is problematic. My The easiest answer to that is just ensure as a scouting network, you're visiting all the areas within your catchment area or within within your region. 
that's the, the clear message rather than shifting any blame to predominantly Asian teams. Why do you think the scouts don't visit all the clubs, all the areas? I think it's an amalgamation of all those things that we've we've said before. I think that um, there's racial stereotypes that exist that uh, they think that British Asian players are not strong enough or not quick enough or too weak. Um, there's also the cultural stereotypes that they harbour that they're not interested, that cricket's number one, that parents don't support them, that type of stuff. I think that the culture of whiteness that exists institutionally within football is a is an issue as well. And because there's that lack of diversity within the coaching coaching networks within the um, within the scouting networks as well, it repeats that whiteness. Um, you know, and I think on the flip side, a lot of people say, well, uh, scouting can't be racist or football can't be racist because we've got so many black players playing, but the stereotypes that surround black players are very, very different from the stereotypes that attach themselves to British Asian footballers. Black players are seen as naturally gifted, as quicker, as stronger, of having this natural ability, uh, are seen as bigger, whereas British Asians are seen as smaller, as weaker, as not really interested in the game. So it's not a positive stereotype facing black players, but it's possibly aided in them being picked up and taken in for trials and, and given the opportunity in clubs, in academies. Whereas the common consensus I've heard time and time again in my research is that British Asian players are still looked at with a, a bit of a gamble that we're not sure whether they'll be able to compete. So there's still that gamble question mark that's put over British Asian players, which again prevents them being brought into those those structures into the into the academies. Okay, before we dive a little bit deeper into solutions, just broadly speaking, I I don't know if there's an answer to this, but do you think it'd be better to tackle this problem from the grassroots level or from the top down, from the Premier League clubs downwards? Wow, um, I think that it's all of it. It's the whole structure. Um, and I think in order to answer that, I think I'll have to answer that question. I probably need to answer the solutions part, which does encompass that question. I think, first of all, the top down to the bottom up needs to be better networks in place. We need pathways. We need feeders. So if you've got a predominantly British Asian club in, say, Leicester or Bradford, we need to ensure that they're connected to local clubs, that they've got a contact at the local club who can come down and scout those players. Those networks are paramount importance in that meso function that I mentioned before, that meso level institutionally, that gets those players to be seen and spotted and given an opportunity. Also coaching, the way that uh, people in the game get coaching opportunities is largely through personal networks, which are grown in, in spaces of whiteness. So I think that we need to destabilise those white-to-white networks that are endemic within football, and not just football. This is a societal problem or a bigger level. But yeah, those networks are problematic, and I think that we can destabilise them and ensure or it's probably stakeholders can play a role and play a key role in actually developing and creating those networks. I think that that's the first one. The second one is 
around education and talking about this and actually getting people in these powerful positions, in these stakeholders, uh, these roles, to actually understand that there's a real issue here, that there are, there is a systemic problem that exists within the game. And that's really, really important. And as I said right at the beginning of this podcast, I meet people time and time again who who don't want to engage with this or think that football is just based on hard work and if you work hard, you'll get to the top no matter what. That's not how society works. That's not how the world works. Some people have certain privileges over others. So I think education is really, really important. And the third one is around policy. And in order to really ensure that we make organisations and people in powerful positions change their practice and commit to positive action or affirmative action is by bringing in sanctions, by bringing in policy changes. And if we do that, they've got targets to meet and it's more likely that they're going to meet them. If we look at something like the Rooney Rule, that's affirmative action. But in a way, it can be bypassed. Um, But that's still a positive step in the right direction. So I think that those three kind of key solutions will be around growing networks. It will be about education within the game and wider. And third would be about policies and, and really positive action and actually sanctioning those who fail to adhere to these movements. Okay, I'll ask a question, possible. I don't know if it's controversial at all. Do you think there is any truth at all in the beliefs that Asians as a community, and I understand where they're not a homogenous group, have let themselves down? Is there more that as a community or communities that we could be doing? Yeah, I think that when we start to almost individualise racism and say it's based on the choices that you've made, then we're not really understanding what racism is. Racism is a a systemic problem, um, which is a a major issue. And and I I, I generally try to avoid blaming the blamed and blaming British Asians for the position that they're in now in terms of the the lack of representation within, within the game. I think that, Obviously, I've, I've asked these questions to, you know, hundreds of British Asian participants who've kindly given up their time to tell me about their stories in the game. And yes, in some cases, some British Asian players didn't take that professional contract because their parent um, said that they weren't allowed to. Um, in some cases, they've not had parental support. But That is a a general stereotype that a lot of people have around British Asian parents. On the flip side, I've spoken to many, many British Asian players who've got to the professional level, who've got to semi-professional level, who say that their biggest role model and champion and supporter was their parents, and they wouldn't have got there without their parents. So to, to suggest that these things are endemic within the British Asian culture, which is considered traditional and monolithic is untrue and you know nobody really asks these questions about you know white players and did they get the parental support but we commonly ask that question about about british asians now what i would say is i have noticed that different that difference when i've been doing these interviews between say the first generation second generation third generation 
And culture moves forward no matter what your ethnicity is. It always moves forward. It's a conveyor belt. So as I said, we go back to the first generation. Okay, football probably wasn't the number one thing to focus on. The second generation probably becomes a little bit more important and something that you can do. For the third generation, they've got the benefit of the first and second generation and the foundations have already been sown. Clubs have already been created. So they're benefiting from that. And then we're talking the fourth generation after that. So I think that we have to be careful when we blame the blamed and shift the blame and say, well, it must be that British Asians can do more or should do more. Yes, the bottom line is we can all do more. We all play a part in our destiny. So if you really want to be a coach or really want to be a professional footballer, you can't get there without the hard work. Of course, you've got to get the hard work in. But not only that, the networks have to be in place for you. Uh, You've got to have policies in place that allow this to happen. We have to educate people in those powerful positions. So it's, it's, I suppose, more comprehensive as a solution rather than saying British Asians need to do more. And if they do more, they'll get to the top. That's too simplistic. The, the whole system needs to, needs to change for the better if we are going to see positive change and wider representation. The, the reason I, part of the reason I asked that question was other than being the devil's advocate, when I've had these conversations with people and with Asians as well, that's the kind of response I will frequently get. Yeah, we just, our parents just focus on education or etc so there's i think one of our previous guests and aurora talked about this as well it's belief having belief within ourselves and i think it's not so much the individual players whether they've got belief but i think and i understand i'm being a little bit stereotypical i think there's there are some biases held within our community too i think be naive to think otherwise yeah of course i mean prejudice and stereotypes can be internalized by anyone. So if if that's the perception, then that's that's people's perception. Um, as I said right at the beginning, or, or you asked me for my ethnicity. I'm I'm a white British guy, um, so I'm from a, a different ethnic background. I've had a different culture. I understand my privilege, but in my position as a, as a lecturer, I've had the opportunity to speak to and interview hundreds of British Asians involved in football from all levels of the game. And from all these interviews that I've done, I I can't categorically say that British Asian uh, people involved in football, you know, unanimously don't support their children or don't want their children to to play football. That's not the case. Many of the people that I've interviewed are very, very supportive. And in fact, some parents have actually uh, encouraged and pushed their their children towards football as opposed to traditional education. So it's it's very very hard to 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 really homogenise, um, you know, millions of people and say that this this is the, the case for for all of them. It, it is a stereotype. And again, Apu, what you were saying before, you, you took your son to, uh, you said he's in a, in an academy. So of course your I'd like to think a supportive parent. Yep. Push your parent. So you possibly work against that stereotype. Listen, I, I'm fully supporting him. I've, I've seen his talent. I've seen his play. I know he's got something about him. 
and like I said, it's it's trying to get other people to see that too. And to be fair to my boy, his his mum supports him. All of our family is fully supportive as well. So, yep. Yeah. There, there we go. It's it's uh, always a contentious one to answer is that question. But I think that the bottom line is that there's a lot of studies being done about parental support. The stuff about communities and um, volunteering and and whether some ethnic groups volunteer more or religious groups volunteer less that type of stuff and from from what i've read and over the years is that certain barriers to to sport um in terms of volunteering are across uh racial groups and it's there's, there's no evidence really to suggest that british asians unanimously don't support their their children their game or you know won't volunteer to help out at the club or things like that um so yeah I, I'm, I'm always cautious of, the, of that one okay fantastic before we move on to talking in a little bit more detail about solutions kevil do you have any other questions at the moment no i'm actually just enjoying listening to dan talk to be honest it's, it's, a, it's a nice change to hear the academic side of things so it's good I'm hearing Dan talk as well. Maybe we shouldn't just let let him go on for the rest of the show. Um, just run the pod, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> run the pod. <laughs> right, <laughs> Dan. Um, okay, solutions. What? So, firstly, what what steps are being taken around the game? To oh, actually, the first question is: What have you seen? In terms of addressing this problem, has there been around the game? Is we know the FA have got something going on. I know the Premier League have just announced just announced um, a new post, exclusion and diversity. Is it officer or director? So I don't know if they've done anything up until this point. Yeah, I think that in the time that I've been studying this, there has been changes, and I think that we are talking about this a lot more than we were 10, 12 years ago. You are right. The FA are starting to do a little bit more. The PFA are starting to look into this a little bit more as well. This has been on the kick-out remit for a very long time. So they've obviously been aware for, for a couple of decades. Um. So, yeah, things things are happening. It's quite slow, but things are happening. I think that you've got some clubs that have taken giant leaps forward and I think that the trailblazers I would probably suggest is Chelsea so Chelsea do the search for the Asian star which has attracted some criticism for being just a one-off event and a marketing thing but at the same time despite those criticisms you look at all the other clubs across the country and that's more than they're doing or, or most of them anyway and as well, I think that the criticism leveled at Chelsea is is somewhat unfair because they are working at challenging this exclusion all year round as well. It's not just a one day thing. They do this all year round. So I think that's that Chelsea are kind of leading the way from a club point of view. The FA, as I said, 2015, bringing opportunities to communities program that was launched And they're now in the second stage of that now as the relaunch happened last year, I believe. So institutionally within the game, things are moving in the right direction. It is slow, but, um, you know, we are moving to where we want to be. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So 
okay where do you see or what do you see as if you had to put it in order what 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 are the steps towards increasing the Asian participation levels at the professional game? I'd, I'd have to jump back to that three-tiered response I gave before. I think that networks are a big part of the reason as to why we've had so few British Asians in participation, but also within coaching and scouting. So I think that increasing those networks or developing those networks is paramount. I think the second thing of major importance is around policies and targets and ensuring that things like the Rooney Rule start to happen. Uh, If you've got affirmative action policies in place and there's targets or there's quotas, things like that have become measurable and it, it really forces organizations to be more proactive um than than perhaps they are historically what what do you want to see targeted well i mean you've got the the rooney rule in coaching haven't you so for me that that is a, a positive step forward i've i have done some research on this and i have interviewed certain uh people around this and they some have suggested that they they don't like it uh, because they want to get the job just based on merit and others are, are welcoming it. And if we look at how, yeah, look at the recruitment system, but look at the panels that give the jobs, let's say scouting or management, the panels are almost unanimously white and they're also male. And we've got something in, and Kevin, you said you've got a background in psychology. You've got this thing called social cloning. So if you go for a job interview and let's say I'm a white guy and I've got a full panel of white guys, they're more likely to gravitate towards me through that idea of social cloning than somebody who's a little bit more different or from a different background. So we've got to consider the selection panels because there are certain biases that exist there. We've also got to look at how people get the jobs and studies have replicated this time and time again that if you send in a job application and you've got, a, say, a, whatever a black sounding name is, or you've got a predominantly British Asian or British Muslim sounding name, you're less likely to be in, uh, brought in for a job interview than somebody who has a stereotypically white Christian sounding name like John or David. So again, there are there are major problems institutionally in how recruitment operates. And when we're talking about policy, we're looking at ways to really destabilize those networks that reproduce social inequality and reproduce whiteness. So for me, things like the Rooney Rule are really, really important. And if we had something similar and quarters that were brought in at clubs, so say they had to uh, visit certain areas or different postcodes than they'd visited before, which are more diverse than in previous years, then that could be a target that they've got to get in. So I think that policy is really important in changing the systems that we see at present. So when you say targets, you're uh, you're talking about in terms of the system, the infrastructure having more minorities, I guess, involved in the scouting, in the coaching, as opposed to targeting specifically 
the numbers of Asians that are brought in for trials, etc. Well, that could be another way of doing it. But I think that if you are looking at coaching and the workforce, historically, it's a white space. If you look at the participation on the field, it's it's relatively diverse. Obviously, there are less British Asians there than there should be, but we've got an over-representation of, of black players. But we don't see that diversity off the field in coaching, management, scouting. So the, the, the ideas around policy or quotas or affirmative action could be around bringing in a, or trying to bring in a set number of people from different backgrounds. That could be one approach. There's no, there's no ideal approach. There's, there's many different approaches that we could take here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to making those almost radical affirmative action shifts. On the, on the flip side of that, of course, it goes back to something I mentioned earlier about education. In order for people to really buy in and understand the necessity of these drastic measures, and they're not they're not really drastic, or they shouldn't be drastic, but they're perceived as drastic affirmative action. You, you've got to get people to understand why they're there. And if people don't understand that there's an issue, and that sport is based on meritocracy, that if you're good enough, you get to the top. If you work hard, you get that job. That's not how football works. It isn't. It's it's. There's an old boys network that exists traditionally. The scouting systems are exclusive, not inclusive. So policies can help challenge those systems. Dan, just just quickly on that, I I got asked this question a few weeks ago, and I'm interested to know your response because you're obviously an expert in this field. Would you would you deem policies of affirmative action to be racist? And from an ethics point of view, is it ethical? I suppose if we're looking at this without diving into it too much is it is it ethical to fight racism with a form of discrimination or all these quotas because there are probably some people listening that that would say that affirmative action could be deemed racist or discriminate discriminatory toward uh, or against white people yeah when you've got all major systems um and institutions are predominantly white owned white-led, white males, they control the, the systems in place and reproduce this system of whiteness so people of colour are, are at a disadvantage through systemic racism. I think also what we need to consider is this notion of power plus prejudice equals racism. There's no such thing as re- reverse racism. That doesn't exist. That's prejudice. Yes, you can have people of colour who are prejudiced towards white people. But we've got to understand what racism is. It's not an individual thing, even though you can have overt racism. Yes, that exists. But racism is about power. And if you are in a powerful position, then that's what we're talking about when we're talking about systemic racism, institutional racism. Now, white people statistically get their jobs. White people statistically are more likely to, to get asked for interviews. White people are more likely to get a better education. White people um, are more likely to, yeah, go to the, the top universities, get better qualifications, get high-paying jobs, live in better neighbourhoods. The list goes on and on and on. If you are white, and if you're white and male, you are statistically in a very, very privileged position. 
if you are a person of colour, if you are a woman, if you are from any minoritized ethnic group, you are at a disadvantage. So what affirmative action doing is trying to redress or readdress those imbalances that are factored and embedded within society. And for me, affirmative action is not about reverse racism. It's not about giving people jobs if they're not qualified. It's still about people working hard and still getting the still still having um the the I, I guess they're still obviously qualified to get those jobs and things. And that's one of the common misconceptions of the Rooney rule. Some people think it just gives coaches of colour a job. It doesn't. What it does is it gets you in a room to present your case to get that interview because historically that's not even happening. That's a barrier even getting in the room, not being shortlisted. So these affirmative action policies is, is really about looking at the systems of oppression and how we can overcome them. We, we spoke about the the systems of oppression in, in one of the last uh, podcasts that we did. And one of the key points that, that I think it was Kasim that we spoke to, he pointed out is that we, we both spoke about the victim culture that Asians have in sport at the moment, where we, you know, we feel like victims in that the system is against us. And one of the things that we also spoke about was trying to burst through the system that's against us is by working hard and putting ourselves in successful positions in order to vicariously allow people after us to do the same. So I'm just, I just wanted to ask you, based on that point then, what are your thoughts on Asians trying to drive through in sport by working hard and putting themselves in these positions as opposed to just relying on affirmative action to get them there in the first place? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that you obviously need to look at both of those things together. If if you don't have the qualifications, if you don't work hard, then you can never get to that dream career, whether it's a coach or a manager or a professional footballer. These things don't just happen. They, one of the uh, one of my interview interviewees uh, about 10 years ago used an analogy of a pot noodle and said that these changes aren't overnight. It's not instant. You don't add water and then suddenly you're there. It's, it's a, a long process. It's an evolution. It's not an instant fix. And yes, of course, no matter what background you're from, you have to work hard to get to the top. You have to put the hours in. And if it's football, you have to put those 10,000 hours in to get to that elite level. Of course, without that, there's no chance. But what we rely on and what we, we want is for the the stakeholders in football, for example, to be aware of the systemic problems that exist. So what can happen around networking and building up those networks and building up those dialogues and relationships? So what what opportunities can we create where we can bring uh, different communities together in a football context to network and 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 actually build up their contacts because as we know in football as in all other institutions as well a large part of how you get a job is by knowing somebody there or a personal recommendation or a friend gives you the nod so i think that yes of course british Asian football communities and all communities must work hard to get there but then i think that the institutions, um, you know, and, and football 
key stakeholders need to do more around networking, need to do more around policy changes and sanctions um, and education. I think that once we do all those things, then we'll start to see change. You mentioned the overrepresentation of black players in in football. Is there anything I have, it's not something I've looked into, but is there anything we could learn from their experiences that you think have been missed so far? Yeah, it's it's something that comes up quite often and there is an overrepresentation and again the the reasons for that there's a, a myriad of reasons that we could allude to. One of them I've already said is about the racialized assumptions of black players that they're more physicalized that they're stronger that they're quicker that they have this natural ability they're faster um but on the flip side of that there's a problem with that because it means that black players might not have to work as hard that they're perhaps a bit lazier that they don't read the game as well and if you look at the managers and the coaches that exist across european football the majority are white White players in commentary and the way that we frame white players is about reading the game. It's about working hard. It's about uh, being about that meritocracy. Uh, it's about you know understanding the game and those types of things. Now those attributes are commonly attached to uh, coaching, and we see an overrepresentation of white coaches and and the sport media, sports journalists commonly frame white players as thinkers and black players as almost the doers relying on the body rather than the brain. So there's there's a lot of issues here. I think that those stereotypes have permeated the psyche of the decision makers in football. But also we need to look at other reasons as to why we have uh, an overrepresentation of black footballers. Let's look at the education system and schools. There's a lot of research done that, that PE teachers or teachers generally will almost push black students away from more academic subjects and push them towards sport because that's this kind of implicit stereotype that they have or unconscious bias that they're moving them towards those spheres. Um, And plus, when we think of successful people of colour in in the media, we, we see footballers, they become your role models, they become your icons, and you aspire to be them. So there's a lot of reasons as to why we have this overrepresentation. But I think it's interesting to then consider the problems that come with that uh, in terms of the, the negative aspect of that, that stereotype that exists, but also the impact that that has had on coaches and managers and the lack of black managers and coaches that we see. I think it's something that me and you, Kevin, have spoken about before in in Britain, for instance, the lack of black professional goalkeepers. Um, I've also mentioned, I think, also to do with that, the way central midfielders are perceived. You've either got your strong, um, tough, defensive midfielder, but the silky smooth ones don't tend to be black. And I can't believe that's anything to do with ability. Well, we saw it in the NFL until recently for the last, well, 50, 60 years where there were hardly any black NFL quarterbacks or franchise quarterbacks, you know, who were massive names. And now all of a sudden you've got, I'm not sure if you're a fan of NFL, but there's maybe four, five, six different NFL quarterbacks who are really big household names and they're all black. So 
you know, it's again, like Dan said, these things take time to come into place and sport tends to be a very reactive environment rather than proactive. And society is a big driving force behind that. But uh, yeah, we definitely have a lot of lessons to learn from, from the black community in terms of how we integrate better into football, because like you alluded to in one of the previous podcasts that we did, you know, we as a community are significantly larger than the black community in terms of just sheer numbers. And yet there's hardly any of us in the sport. So we need to understand how they've integrated and why they've integrated so well in order to improve our chances. Have you heard of the John Paul Wilson study? Either of you two? I haven't. You may well have done, but possibly under a different name, etc. So John Paul Wilson, uh, an American university, I'm not sure which one. He got, a black guy and a white guy, same height, same weight, and through weightlifting or whatever, they they made sure they're both the same strength as well. And then did a variety of tests trying to get people to determine height and levels of aggression, etc. And despite the two of them being exactly the same, people would always assume that the black chap was bigger, stronger, and more aggressive. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't surprise me because that that stereotype is seared into our consciousness through hundreds of years. We see images, we see reports where we have African-Americans, for example, linked to super predators. We've got uh, black knife crime, so knife crime becomes racialized and ethnically coded. And these, these bombardment of stereotypes, we breed them in. And if we breathe in this polluted air, then we're going to think in a polluted way. So we don't look at people with the same eyes. We look at people and judge them and assign characteristics and connotations based on physical appearance. And it's through education that we learn how to prevent ourselves from doing that. Did you do right? So, Dan, let's say we've, we've spoken about changing changing the systems, changing policies, improving education, etc. If you had a magic wand and you could put in place either two or three things in that would significantly improve the development of Asians in football over the next few years, what would you do? Wow. Okay. So magic wand, let's do that. So the first one would be holding some kind of national and regional networking event which brings together people from different backgrounds excluded groups and ensures that they have a clear point of contact within the game in different areas in the game in their region so it might be the local county fa it might be um somebody involved in in local level sport uh, whatever it whatever it might be and these People, these contacts would be that that real real point of contact around how to set up a grassroots team, how to grow a grassroots team, how to apply for funding, how to apply for space where they can train, for example, these types of things. Um, so I think networking is really, really important and developing and growing those networks. I think the next one will be really about advancing Chelsea's search for an Asian soccer star. So that goes down to the recruitment Mm -hmm. issues that we have and the talent identification issues that we have. So 
rather than take the scouts out to find the players, what Chelsea have cleverly done is they've brought the players in to the scouts. And this model can be successful. And the Chelsea search has produced players who've gone on to play at other academies and I think even offered professional uh, contracts. So I think that if we franchised something like that and we brought players into clubs for trials from different backgrounds or predominantly what Chelsea are doing is they're looking specifically for excluded groups, i.e. British Asian players. If clubs across the country in areas in densely populated British Asian areas were doing something similar, I would expect that we'd have more British Asian players playing in academies. And if we've got more in academies, we're more likely to get more British Asian players at professional level. So that's one thing that I would suggest. So I think the the two things that I'd probably with a magic wand would be about growing networks and developing them. And I think institutional uh, stakeholders can play a key role in, in, in making that happen. And the second one would be about challenging those almost insular talent identification routes that we currently have. So doing something similar to Chelsea on a, on a national scale would massively help. Fantastic. Dan, um, just lastly, how can people get in touch with you or see what you're up to? Uh, yeah, feel free to get in touch with me on Twitter at Dan underscore Kilvington. Or if you want to uh, email me, d.j.kilvington at leadsbeckett.ac.uk. Always happy to chat to anyone who's who's interested in, in this topic or largely around race, anti-racism, things like that. Fantastic. Dan, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much.